Growing up, we learned that stories, even Maleficent, uh, fairy tales began the same way. Once upon a time, that was the setting. And they always ended the same way. Clearly, I borrowed from my sermon for the children's message. They always ended the same way. And they all lived happily ever after. But in between those two common points, a lot of stuff happens. Last week, we talked about how this big epic story of the Bible has a setting not too uncommon for most fairy tales. Once upon a time, God created the heavens and the earth. God created plants and animals and sea creatures. God created humanity. God formed Adam and Eve out of the dust of the earth and breathed into them the breath of life. God created Eve to be a suitable partner for Adam. So God gave Adam and Eve to live in the garden, to care for it, and to live in harmony with the rest of creation. God creates us in love. God creates us for love. And God gives us everything we need to thrive. That's the setting. That's the starting point for the epic love story that God writes to us in the Bible. And yet, for that story to be an epic, it needs some drama. It needs some movement. Something needs to happen. Unfortunately, the story moves. This morning, we are going to talk about what happened. It's funny, though. In some respects, this is the easiest point to make theologically. Writing nearly a century ago, theologian Reinhold Niebuhr declared that the only Christian doctrine that has universal assent is the doctrine of original sin. When we read Genesis 2, we read about life immediately following creation. When we think about the harmony of Eden, we know that between then and now, something has happened. Something has gone wrong. When we think about our lives, we know that something is fundamentally wrong. We turn on the news and we hear about mass shootings. We see our kids being bullied. We see what social media is doing to our students. We constantly hear words of hate, words that belittle, words that divide. We watch as loved ones die. We experience grief, sorrow, hurt, and pain. We experience disordered relationships, disordered desire. We experience disorder. And we know, deep down, that something is wrong. How did we get here? How did things come to be this way? That is what we are here to talk about this morning, as much of a downer as it is. The first two sermons in this series were much cheerier. So if you're jumping in today for the first time, go check the other two out. They're much, much brighter subjects. In Genesis 3, we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now I'm having us jump in midstream, so let me back up. In Genesis 2, Adam, or God creates Adam and Eve and puts them in a garden of Eden to keep it. And God told them that they could eat any fruit they wanted. God gives them a giant salad bar, but says there is one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from which they could not eat. 
So the serpent says, did God really say that? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. The serpent is trying to reauthor Eve's story. We said in uh, the, the introduction, introductory sermon to this series, that life was the competition of two stories. And we see here, early in the first dramatic movement, this dynamic at play. The serpent gives Eve the ultimate temptation. That if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God yourself. And in so doing, the serpent is telling Eve a different story about God and about herself. The serpent is telling Eve that God isn't looking out for her. God isn't caring for her. But God is selfishly guarding power for God's own self. The serpent is saying that if God really loved Eve, God would let Eve eat from this tree and would let Eve be like God. The serpent is saying that God is a fearmonger who is using the threat of death in order to protect God's own part of the sandbox. God isn't loving, the serpent says. God isn't caring. God hasn't given you everything you need to thrive. God is selfish. God is only looking out for himself. If God really loved you, he'd let you have this fruit. This is a narrative we are still told. This is a story about God that we are still told. And what happens? What causes all of this hurt and disorder? We buy into that narrative. When the woman saw the, that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. There is so much imagery and allegory going on in this story. It is so deep and beautiful. Prior to eating from the tree, Adam and Eve relied on God to know what was good for them and what was evil. They had no concept of good and evil. They simply did the will of God in every instance. Somehow in eating the fruit of the tree and having their eyes opened and being able to know what is good and evil themselves, they begin to want to order their own lives. They think that the way that God has designed for them to live is not right. It's inadequate. They see that they are naked and they instead want to be clothed. We too want to order our own lives. We want to decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. We buy into a self-involved, self-centered narrative where we know for ourselves what is best. We know for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. And what happens next is that we know for everyone else what is right and what is wrong. You see, our knowledge of good and evil becomes universal. 
at least within the confines of our own piece of the sandbox that we confuse to be the entirety of the universe. And when I know what is right for you, and you know what is right for you, eventually we will be at odds with each other, and our relationships become distorted. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. Here we see the climax of all the conflicts and movements we have covered thus far. Here we see just how disordered our relationships can become. Adam and Eve hear God, and they are afraid. They have bought into the narrative that God isn't a God of love. God isn't looking out for them. God is out to get them. So they hide. Last week we talked about God creating us and how God created us out of an overflow of divine love. God tells us a story of our creation in order for us to know that we are loved and we are not alone. And here we see immediately Adam and Eve have discarded that narrative for a narrative that says our relationship to God should be based out of fear. God questions them. Where are you? And like a teenager, Adam slips up and says he knew that he was naked. God asks the follow-up, how did you know that? And this begins the greatest, most real back and forth in all of scripture. God catches Adam. So what does Adam do? Admit that he was wrong, admit he's messed up, and apologize? Nope. Eve made me do it. Actually, it's even better than that. This woman, who you, God, put here, she made me do it. Adam first blames Eve and then blames God. Typical guy. Am I right, ladies? But then what does Eve do? The serpent deceived me. She passes the blame on as well. The fundamental relationships of Genesis 2 are God's relationship with Adam and Adam's relationship with Eve. And both of them have come crashing down in a blaze of fear and blame. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, 
and you will eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all living. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. There are consequences to Adam and Eve's disobedience. There are consequences for their sin. But I also want us to see the grace in this passage. God had said that on the day that they ate of the tree, they would surely die. And yet, God does not kill them for their disobedience. God gives them time. Their lives will be harder. They will struggle. We still see the consequences of their disobedience. They will be subjected to pain, as are we. But they will live. And that time is a gift. That time is grace. And there's a moment in this story that is among the most beautiful I've ever read. God created Adam and Eve. God placed them in a garden and gave them everything they needed to thrive. God loved Adam and Eve beyond any love that we can comprehend. And they betrayed God. Imagine the hurt God felt. Imagine the pain. These creatures that you have given everything to have turned against you. And their fig leaf clothes were the sign of that betrayal. And yet, what does God do? He makes them close. God still loves them so much that he will make them close despite the hurt, despite the pain, despite the fact that it is not how God created them to live. God makes them close because it's how they want to live. I find that deeply moving. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And so the final consequence is that we are subjected to death, to sorrow, to grief. That is our lot in life as we decide to live lives on our own, apart from the God who sustains us. Now lest we think that this is just a story about Adam and Eve, lest we think that this is just an ancient myth that we modern people have moved beyond, Paul in his letter to the Romans in the, the second half of the Bible makes it very clear to us that this sickness has spread to all. In his letter to the Romans, Paul spends the first chapter talking about Gentiles who didn't have the law, but had wisdom. They had logic. They were enlightened. And yet, they still fell into unrighteousness. And he's doing all of this to... You can just hear those with the law going, yeah, they think they're so smart. They don't know righteousness. We know righteousness because we have the law. But lest Israel boast, Paul spends the entirety of chapter 2 pointing out that the nation that had the law broke it. So no one is immune. 
And then he says in Romans 3, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Where does this leave us? What does this mean for us? Why is this element necessary in the story that God is telling us? The world is not how it's supposed to be. This world is not how it was meant to be. I actually find comfort in this. I might be weird, but I do. I find comfort in times of being hurt, in times of grief, in times of pain, knowing that this is not how it was supposed to be. I find comfort in being able to say that this is awful. Things must change. Things are supposed to change. When you are hurt, when you are backstabbed, when you put your trust in someone and they don't come through. Know that these are not how our relationships are supposed to function. When you're cheated, when you're lied to, when you're let down, know that God wants better for us. Life wasn't supposed to be like this. We weren't supposed to behave this way. Before things can get any better, we have to admit that things could be better. We have to admit that there's a problem. And we have to admit that we are part of that problem. We need help. We need healing. We need a savior. Our story is one of a people created in love, created for love, who have failed to live up to the calling of our creation. But our salvation will not come from the perfect leader or the perfect form of government or from the perfect collection of self-help books. Our salvation will not come from simply wanting to live our best lives yet. Our crisis is one of our own making, but the solution will not be of our own making. We know this because us knowing what's best for ourselves was precisely the problem. The story of our crisis has one solution, our return to God giving up on knowing what is best for ourselves, giving up on knowing what is right and wrong ourselves, giving up on knowing what is good and evil ourselves, and simply following God. Our story was meant to be 
a people created out of love by a loving God to love each other and live in harmony with God and each other, following our God in everything that we do. We have fallen for a different story. Will you let God tell you that the way things are are not the way they were meant to be? Will you believe that we are in crisis? And will you yearn for redemption, reconciliation, and healing so that we can all live and be as we were created to be? Let us pray. God, we need you. We need you in our hearts. We need you in our lives. We need you in our communities. We need you to heal. We need you to heal us. To heal our relationships. We need you because we know that there is a problem. We know that things aren't the way they were supposed to be. We can see dysfunction and disorder in places where there was meant to be nothing but love and harmony. And God, we know that we can't solve this ourselves. So come to us now, God. Fill our hearts with your Holy Spirit. Fill our lives with your presence. Because we only want to follow you. Lead us and guide us, Lord, and, and help us to be a part of reordering our relationships and reordering our lives around your purposes. And help us be a small part of healing and restoring and reconciling this whole world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.